So remember how last time I said that this episode was going to be about lost books? Well, unfortunately, some scheduling errors have made it, so uh, we had to kind of think of some last-minute ideas here. So I put some ideas to a vote on Twitter. Um, You guys chose the ultimate topic. There are a lot of fun topics up there, like the lost episodes of Doctor Who, Jackie Kennedy's hat, but um, knowing my audience, they gravitated towards the most morbid subject. So here we are. Nepal, 1924. We all know the mountain, Everest, tallest mountain on earth, and most of us know the story. Two skilled climbers, Tenzing Norgay of Nepal and Sir Edmund Hillary of New Zealand, managing to defy all odds and summit Mount Everest, or at least becoming the first officially recognized people to do so. But behind this successful expedition is another less talked about story. Most people forget that the Norgay Hillary achievement was the result of a ninth expedition to Everest. As far back as 1922, the British had long desired to restore their legacy of exploration, which had peaked in the late 1800s. After failing to become the first nation to reach both the North and South Poles, British adventurers turned their eyes heavensward to a forbidden mountain that straddled the border of Nepal and China. Even getting to the base of Mount Everest was, in and of itself, an incredible feat, as it involved intense diplomatic clearance from multiple governments, a small window of opportunity due to weather conditions, and trekking through miles and miles of snowy, arduous Himalayan terrain. In 1922, mountaineer George Mallory had charted a possible route to the top of the summit, and joined in an ultimately doomed expedition that resulted in seven of his fellow climbers dying in an avalanche, marking the first recorded climbing deaths on Everest. In March of 1924, a second attempt was made. This 1924 expedition was comprised of George Bruce, who headed the expedition, his second-in-command, Edward Norton, as well as a team of climbers that included George Mallory and engineering student Andrew Irvine. From the very beginning, fate was not on their side. Shortly before reaching base camp, George Bruce contracted malaria and could not continue serving as their commander. Edward Norton took over in his stead. Among the expedition party were Sherpas, local Nepalese mountain guides, and their leader, Gyalzen, who told the British that it would be unwise to attempt the mountain without consulting the Buddhist monastery and receiving its blessing. Unfortunately, The Lama, or presiding monk, was ill that day and could not permit them an audience. The team decided to forgo the blessing and press on. This might not have been a wise decision, because as soon as the expedition approached the base of the mountain, the weather, which had up until that point been quite temperate, suddenly turned cold and snowy, making for a rough ascent. There were several planned attempts to reach the summit, which were undertaken by different members of the team, who would each stop at the four designated camps or various points of ascent. But here's the thing about Everest. The closer you get to the top, the more challenges await you. For one, temperatures near the summit never rise above freezing. At their coldest, 
Mount Everest temperatures can drop to negative 60 degrees Celsius or negative 76 degrees Fahrenheit. But the greatest danger of Everest, and the most integral aspect of this story, is a region of the mountain nearest to the top called the Death Zone, which begins at 8,000 meters or 26,000 feet. It is best described by this podcaster as a buffet of bad things, slippery ice that can lead to deadly falls, gale force winds, freezing temperatures, and atmospheric pressure. Yes, the view from the top is literally breathtaking, as the normal amount of oxygen that's usually available to most humans is reduced to a third. For this reason, modern-day climbers usually have to undergo altitude acclimatization before making an attempt at summiting Everest. Without preparation, someone from a below-sea-level populace, such as New Orleans, would lose consciousness within two to three minutes. Also, your eyeballs would explode. Well, not really, but retinal hemorrhages can leave you blind, and do happen on Everest. And because of the freezing temperatures and conditions, bodies that are left behind on Everest are extremely well-preserved, to the point where decay takes an exceptionally long time. Thanks, Wikipedia, for putting that image in my head. Anyways, these were the conditions the 1924 expedition was up against, and yet several of their approaches towards the summit were undergone without use of oxygen tanks. After two different attempts that were thwarted by a combination of bad planning and the elements, Mallory and Irvine decided to make a third attempt. Though Irvine was not as experienced a climber as the others in the expedition, he was knowledgeable about how to use oxygen tanks most effectively, and had established a friendly rapport with Mallory on the initial leg of their journey. On June 6, 8.40 a.m., Mallory and Irvine began their climb, along with several Sherpas. The Sherpas later returned to camp with a note from Mallory, letting his companions know that him and Irvine were hopeful about reaching the summit. Another brief update followed. On June 8th, one of Mallory and Irvine's teammates, Noel Odell, went out to see if he could establish contact, or at least monitor his companion's ascent. Around noon, the mist that ringed the summit of Everest cleared, and Odell spotted Mallory and Irvine at the base. Or at least he thought he did. It is recorded in his diary that what he saw were, as he described, two tiny specks against the white of the snow, and barely discernible. But by Odell's account, Mallory and Irvine had, presumably, just successfully reached the highest point of the world's tallest mountain. Not long after this sighting, Odell approached their camp, which was in disarray, and he decided to wait for Mallory and Irvine to return. A sudden storm kicked up, and Odell became concerned, fearing that his teammates might have gotten caught in the snow during their descent. Though he whistled and shouted for them to give him a signal, nothing came out of the white abyss. The next day, Odell, as well as several teammates and Sherpas, went looking for Mallory and Irvine, but no trace of the men remained. The day after this, Odell went back to their tent to see if they had returned, but there was no change or sign that they had come back to make use of it since the time Odell had last been there. With a heavy heart, Odell laid down six blankets and a cross for the other members of the expedition to find should they reach that portion of the mountain. This symbol meant no trace can be found, given up hope, awaiting orders. On June 11th, all surviving members of the expedition disembarked for the base of the mountain, leaving the fates of George Mallory and Andrew Irvine unknown. It was later reported that Mallory had carried a small photo of his wife, Ruth, on him at all times during the expedition. 
Despite their untimely disappearance, Noel Odell and expedition leader Norton believed that Mallory and Irvine had become the first people to ever reach the summit of Everest and subsequently went astray or experienced a tragic accident on their descent. But since this couldn't officially be confirmed or sanctioned by the mountaineering community at large, the Norgay Hillary expedition is still recognized as the first successful attempt. This exploration left behind two unanswered questions. Did George Mallory and Andrew Irvine actually manage to reach the summit, their achievements unknown to documented history? And if so, what happened to them? Another expedition in 1933 turned up Irvine's ice axe 250 yards away and 60 feet below the ridge where Irvine and Mallory had last been seen. It was theorized that the axe hinted at a possible tragic outcome, as it would not have been abandoned unless some accident had occurred. A Chinese mountaineer by the name of Wang Hong Bao was part of an expedition in 1975, and he reported that he saw the corpse of a Caucasian man in old climbing attire somewhere around 26,527 feet up the mountain, but this was later denied by Chinese authorities. To be fair, Chinese authorities love to deny things. Finally, in 1999, a German expedition sent out to Everest with the explicit purpose of solving the Mallory and Irvine mystery. Among finding old discarded oxygen tanks that hinted at the doomed party's final whereabouts, the team also reproduced Odell's final view of Irvine and Mallory, according to his accounts. At around 26,768 feet up the mountain, the German team came upon a corpse they identified as George Lee Mallory, well-preserved per the Everest climate. The team concluded that Mallory had fallen, but not far, and that he had been safety roped to Irvine when the accident had occurred. Mallory had completely broken his right foot and had sustained, quote, a golf ball-sized puncture wound to the forehead. Among his belongings that were on him at the time of the accident, his Kodak camera was never found. But nor was the photo of his wife, Ruth. Theorists, and romantics such as myself, like to believe that the absence of Mallory's most precious photo is a clue that answers the other 1924 expedition mystery. Perhaps Mallory had managed to reach the summit, and left the photo at the top of the world as a testament to the woman he loved. The winds that may have swept the photo away may have also covered up the body of Andrew Irvine, whose final resting place remains unknown. Mallory and Irvine are not the only ones whose lives have been taken by the unforgiving mountain. Due to the nature of the terrain, climate, and logistics, successfully retrieving bodies from the death zone is nearly impossible, which presents us with a grim reality, one that your second grade teacher may have chosen to skip over when going over the story of the Norgay Hillary climb in 1958. The fact is, over 200 accumulated bodies of those who attempted to reach the summit remain on Mount Everest. In addition to the aforementioned dangers of trying to take these corpses off the mountain, there is a code of honor among mountaineers and climbers which dictates that if one should die during a climb, then their body should remain on the mountain. Also, and this is super gross, but it's actually really hard to remove a corpse when it's literally frozen into the ice. It may not surprise you, listeners, that I have no interest in mountain climbing in the foreseeable future, especially after doing this episode. 
But I put this up to a vote, and you asked for it, so here we are. So here's the statistics on Mount Everest fatalities. Unsurprising, most of the deaths occur in or around the summit portions of the death zone, because the tallest mountain in the world should not be obligated to notions of subtlety. Cause of death on average on Mount Everest. Avalanches count as the highest, with 29%. Falls, second, with 23%. Exposure to the cold, or frostbite, 11%. Acute mountain sickness or oxygen deprivations, 10%. Other accounts for 27%. Other, of course, being yetis. I'm joking, but I am going to milk any levity I can get out of this episode, so bear with me. On average, around 1,000 people attempt to climb Everest each year, with roughly 500 of those people reaching the summit with the aid of Sherpas and guides. Because there are so many bodies and readily apparent view of climbers who make this journey, mountaineers have taken to using certain corpses as landmarks. In fact, one infamous area near the summit has earned the cheery moniker of Rainbow Valley named for the different colored parkas on dead climbers that have accumulated there since the mid-20th century. So, why do people do it? Well, mostly the thrill, and in the words of Edmund Hillary himself, simply because it's there. And also, though people do die on Everest every year, the death tolls are higher on at least several other famous mountains, such as K2. It's actually quite easy not to die on Everest, but it only takes the slightest turn of luck, such as being caught and overwhelmed in a sudden storm, or an unexpected slip, which is what befell the first American woman to summit Everest without use of an oxygen tank. In 1998, Frances de Stefano Arcentive, an experienced climber and mother, told her 11-year-old son Paul that it was her dream to climb Everest along with his stepfather, Sergei. Knowing the danger that awaited her, Frances entrusted Paul with the ultimate final say on whether or not she should go. On the day Paul encouraged his mother to climb, Paul suffered a nightmare of two mountain climbers caught in a blizzard. The very next morning, he told his mother that he had reconsidered allowing her to go. But by that point, Frances had, respectfully, made up her mind. On May 22, 1998, Sergei and Frances successfully made it to the top of Everest. But on the descent, the conditions forced them to take refuge overnight, a dangerous risk with the decreasing temperatures. At some point, the couple became separated when Francis fell unconscious, and when Sergei attempted to go back for her, he slipped and fell into a chasm, killing him. A multinational climbing team happened to come upon Francis around 5 a.m., though she was found mostly unresponsive. Ian Woodall of Britain and Kathy O'Dowd of South Africa attempted to try and pull Francis into safer terrain, but ultimately found the task impossible, and had to make what was perhaps one of the hardest decisions in their lives, to abandon Francis on the mountain. Francis passed away in the early hours of the morning, and her frozen remains became a landmark on the path that the climbers would refer to as Sleeping Beauty. Many bodies on Everest end up being christened with unique signifiers, converting them from people with lives and histories into waymarkers. The family members of the Everest deceased, such as Francis' surviving son, argue that this is incredibly dehumanizing. Not only that, but since the bodies on Everest are unable to be recovered and repatriated, many surviving relatives feel as if they will never receive closure. Controversially, both Woodall and O'Dowd returned to the site of Francis' body in 2007. 
where they wrapped her in an American flag and gave her what is considered the closest thing to respectful burial on Everest, pushing a body off the ridge into the deep crevasse below. But who gets to carry out these ceremonies, and if they even have the right to do so, remains a topic of intense debate. As do the identities of all the bodies on Everest, some who are completely unknown. Perhaps the most infamous case, and a more modern mystery, is that of the fate of Tsewang Paljor, a climber from India who died in one of Everest's catastrophes. One might argue that he is, or was, Mount Everest's most recognized corpse, which is a sentence I never thought I'd ever have to say aloud. Situated below an overhanging rock alcove, and turned sideways in a fetal position, the remains of Tsewang Paljor became known as Green Boots, for the obvious reason of his brightly colored neon green footwear that stuck out from the white snow. Green Boots Cave became both an easily identifiable waypoint for travelers making their way up the mountain, as well as a warning, as there were other unfortunate climbers who would go on to join him there. This was the case with a gentleman named David Sharp, who took refuge in the cave as he succumbed to altitude sickness. Tragically, several other climbers passed him by, thinking him already dead or resting in the cave. By the time anybody realized he was slowly dying, it was far too late to help him. Again, a reminder to everyone listening, you chose this topic. I just put it up there, don't blame me. The identity of the frozen body in the green boots was the source of speculation for years, but many climbers who have seen the corpse firsthand believe this to be Tsewang Paljor. Paljor had been a respected and beloved figure in his village, who was known for being extraordinarily kind-hearted and determined. In hopes of supporting his family, Paljor joined up with the ITBP, or Indo-Tibetan Border Police, whose very dangerous job was securing the natural mountainous border between China, Nepal, and India. His brother, Tinle Namgyala, was a Buddhist monk, and shortly before Paljor joined up with an expedition and heading up to Everest, Tinle gave him his blessing. Binley was also the last civilian to see Paljor alive. The 10th of May, 1996. After a delayed start, Paljor and his team set out for the summit and immediately ran into brutal winds. Their commander, Harbhajan Singh, was trailing behind them and signaled for them to turn around and return to camp. Today, Singh believes they may have failed to see him in the tumultuous weather as they kept pushing forward. Singh took refuge at camp and received communication over his walkie-talkie that his men were attempting to reach the summit. Despite Singh pleading with them to turn back, the adventurers, including Paljur, were persistent. About an hour later, Singh was elated and relieved when his men radioed in to tell him that they had reached the top and were on their way back. This marked the first Indian team to reach the summit, and the news sent waves of celebration across the country. Then, the blizzard set in. Singh encountered a Japanese climbing team and was able to translate through their Sherpas that his team was caught out in the open and needed to be helped. The following events are hotly contested, and I encourage you to read up on them yourselves. But in the end, though the Japanese team did encounter two members of the Indian expedition, there was nothing that could be done, as, reportedly, the two men they had come across were frostbitten and nearly dead. Beyond this, the blizzard was getting worse, so much so that it ended up claiming the lives of multiple mountaineers on that day, which has since become known as the 1996 Everest disaster. 
Author and journalist John Krakauer, who had been on that mountain that day, survived the hellish ordeal and went on to pen the best-selling novel Into Thin Air. This incident also served as the basis for the 2015 movie Everest, which chronicled a doomed commercial expedition of international climbers. Harbhajan Singh survived and went on to lead a successful life, but he admits that he remains haunted by the tragedy of what happened that day, especially the loss of Tsewang Paljor, whose story and ultimate fate is wrapped up in grief, blame, and conflicting opinions. For one, while David Sharp's body was removed from the alcove, the man in the green boots was left behind, and his remains are far older. Complicating removal efforts is the Indian-Tibetan Border Patrol's belief that the body may not actually be Paljor's, or even an Indian national's, at all. There is also the curious fact that, as of 2014, the body has reportedly gone missing. Climber Noel Hanna was the first to report the absence of the man in the green boots. Weirder, he noted that a majority of the frozen bodies that comprised the stretch of terrain known as Rainbow Valley were also missing. Adding to the bizarre nature of his account, Hanna believes that he may have been somewhat responsible for their disappearance. It turns out, Hanna had attended a dinner with the Chinese Mountaineering Association only a few weeks before his trip. At this meeting, Noel suggested to the higher-ups in attendance that they should remove the bodies from the commonly walked path. To follow up on his suspicion, Hana reached out to the Chinese authorities, but surprising nobody, they were not very forthcoming. Hana suspected that this may have been due to a combination of secrecy and international backlash, as it's more than likely that whoever removed the bodies simply did so by pushing them over the side of the cliff. While this is widely considered the closest thing one can get to performing a proper burial in Everest, to many it's an noble and somewhat disrespectful act. It's also possible that the bodies, including the man in the green boots, were ritually buried under stones, which were then covered up near the omnipresent Everest snowfall. An update from a prominent Everest blog curated by climbing enthusiast Alan Arnett may provide a conclusion to this strange, sad tale. In an entry dated to May 27th, 2017, which is also both of my sister's birthdays, which is super weird, Arnett reports a team of Russian climbers called the Seven Summits Club who said that they had gone and covered up the bodies of those who had succumbed to the mountain, including the man in the green boots. But a following update confirms that they did not touch this particular victim of the 1996 blizzard. Other accounts, and even a photo depicting what appears to be the body in an entirely new location, points to Green Boots having fallen onto the side of a cliff face, very close by to his original location. This haphazard relocation could have been from the attempt by the Chinese mountaineers that Hana spoke to in 2014. Still, there are others who believe that the body captured in recent photograph belongs to an unrelated victim, as the position of the corpses do not line up. For now, the fate of the remains of the man in the green boots, or Tsewang Paljor, remains a mystery. If anything, the takeaway of these stories of the Everest bodies is that nobody's identity should ever be reduced to a landmark. It should also be remembered that, despite their untimely deaths, many of these people successfully mounted the summit and fulfilled their lifelong dreams. For those who don't make it, 
some do. Other than that, I really have no solid conclusion for this story. There are photos of the Everest bodies online, and I encourage you not to look at them. See you next time! Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. The amazing theme music you're hearing was composed by Devin. If you like this podcast, you can leave a four or five star rating in iTunes so other people can find out about it. You can also connect to Relic via Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. If you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, or corrections, please send me an email at losttreasurepod at gmail.com. Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net. That's Blueberry without the E. Our Facebook group is The Reliquary, the Lost Treasure Podcast group. Next time, thanks to humanity's dedication to the arts and the written word, you can walk to your local library and pull off from the shelves books written as far back as the Bronze Age. But what happened to those famous tomes and stories that didn't survive the test of time? Relic, and a special guest, explore these forgotten literary works and lament the burning of the library at Alexandria in our next episode. The adventure continues.